From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It's not a discussion anyone wants to have, but it's inevitable for all of us how to prepare for death. There are choices to be made when it comes to end-of-life care, and while it may be difficult, planning ahead can take the burden off your loved ones and help them to honor your wishes. On today's program, we'll talk about preparing for end-of-life decisions and a new book on the subject with the author, who happens to be a Mayo Clinic expert. Imagine that. Also on the program, we'll learn about standing workstations and weight loss. A little bit at a time can add up and how dental health is important to overall health in adults. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. When it's time for end-of-life care, there are decisions that have to be made and questions to answer for patients and their families. Questions about hospice, palliative care options, life support, feeding tubes, who makes the health care decisions, all those issues can add to the emotional impact of this time of life and death. A new book coming out this fall titled Farewell aims to help families navigate the end-of-life decisions. And here to discuss is the author of that book and multiple-time guest <laughs> on Mayo Clinic Radio, oncologist and palliative care specialist, Dr. Ed Cragen. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Cragen. Oh, Tracy, thank you, Tom. Thank you so much. Uh, it is an honor to be in this tabernacle <laughs> of greatness. You know, I remember <laughs> the day when you were practicing mainly medical oncology, and now you've sort of transitioned into palliative care. Do you still do medical oncology? Uh, yes, but that is a minor contribution of my effort. And in the late 1990s, I became the first Mayo Clinic consultant board certified in hospice medicine and palliative care. And my colleagues looked at me like I had four heads. They couldn't comprehend why anyone would do this. Now, we have become an enterprise-wide department under Dr. Jake Strand. We have an international footprint, and people understand that the death and dying process is crucial for each of us. Which is hard because Americans in general don't want to get old or die. You're absolutely right. But we better understand the biopsychosocial financial implications of the dying process. And that's what the new book is about? Absolutely. This is a flight plan to dissect what every family needs to understand about this process. And every baby boomer who's listening to this needs to read this book because they're struggling with incredibly painful end-of-life situations. Let me give you an example. Several years ago, a prominent member of the community developed advanced lung cancer. He was unique in having an MBA and a CPA. I was not his caregiver, but we knew each other socially. We talked about his illness. And I made the comment, where are you with the financial stuff? Have you connected the dots? Have you done your homework? And he says, oh, yes, not a problem. Well, as he became more and more ill, he and his family did not do their homework. He died, and it was a nightmare. Just look at the situation about Prince, the entertainer. Look at Michael Jackson, what happened. And I am convinced that no one in general has the appropriate will or estate planning 
And upon their death, it is a tsunami of misery and suffering, especially today when the American family is fractionated, split families, adult stepchildren who don't even know each other, and it becomes a nightmare if it's not appropriately addressed as we do in this book. When's the book coming out? This will come out most likely the second week in September, and this will be our sixth book, and it really focuses on what patients and families really need to understand about the healthcare system. Well, there has to there has to be lots of books written about the legal, what you just spoke about, the legal stuff that needs to be taken care of so that families don't devolve into chaos. But you said the biological, psychosocial, what was that list again? The bio, psychosocial, spiritual, spiritual. as well as the financial implications. Yeah. And this experience has been gleaned from about 40,000 contacts with the terminally ill. So even if one is a complete Luddite, if you're a dunce, if you simply listen to these stories, you realize that most of us don't pay attention to the unlimited marital deductions, to the irrevocable life insurance trusts. And if the homework is not done, your family is writing a check to Governor Mark Dayton for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Or any of the governors in the states where we're broadcast. Absolutely. And this, <laughs> is a, this is a big deal. And family is not aware of the emotional devastation of dealing with the death of a loved one. I saw the spouse of this particular patient a few months ago, and she says that she has been in a fog for three to four years. Can't concentrate, can't play bridge, loses her golf ball on a golf course. The things that we take for granted have been taken from her because she didn't understand this is the consequences of having your soul severed from your life partner. When the, the book comes out, is it one of those books that you ought to read when it, the death of someone in your family is imminent, or is it a, something that you might want to read before that? Uh, aging parents, I suppose. Okay. Anybody who has aging parents? You better read the book in the parking lot after you buy it. <laughs> Do not wait until the biopsy comes back positive. Right now, we're dealing with a beloved family member, a gentleman in his early 70s, slowly deteriorating from malignant Alzheimer's disease, malignant dementia. These so that's worse than benign dementia. That's I worse than benign. Rapidly progressing. Rapidly progressing. Actually, okay. we visited over the weekend. And his family is struggling. They're overwhelmed. And his beloved wife of 35 years is struggling to take care of decisions about estate management, properties, boats, automobiles, so it's overwhelming, and families can be taken advantage of when they're not street smart and savvy about end-of-life stuff. There is all that. I want to talk more about how people can prepare themselves, their spirit, their soul. The other part, a lot of people ignore the financial stuff. Yes. But the part where people need to appreciate the fact that they are going to die, their parents are going to die, how much do you get into that in this book? The book is focused on enlightening the caregivers to anticipate what will happen. So this is the flight plan that families and caregivers must understand or they'll have no concept of what's happening. 
for example, there was a wonderful woman who passed away in Chicago a few weeks ago. I never met her, but I had been connected with her through email and text messages. And a recurring theme was that she was offered multiple treatments, but nobody ever talked about the cost of these treatments. She was not curative in the usual sense of the word, and she would off was offered treatment after treatment, which eroded her quality of life, and it was like buying a lottery ticket. Her caregivers were right on top of things, state-of-the-art management, but they never explained the cost of these investigational experimental treatments. We're just about out of time on this segment, but I want you to, to tell our listeners about the importance of an advanced directive. Without an advanced directive, you might as well buy a lottery ticket. With the advanced directive, it's two parts. Number one, who will speak for us if we cannot speak for ourselves? And secondly, what aggressive level of management do we want? My wife and I go over this every year so that there's no misunderstandings. And if either of us are in a situation which is not fixable and not curable, we want comfort measures only. We do not want dialysis, multiple subspecialists. We do not want to be on a respirator. That's not a good way to spend your last several hours on this planet. The woman that you just talked about, did she have an advanced directive or maybe it wasn't complete enough? It was inadequate. Mm -hmm. Nobody thinks about these things until the 11th hour when they simply are not effective. All right. We've been talking with Dr. Ed Cragen about his new book coming out this fall, right, Dr. Cragen? This fall, yes. And it's September. called Farewell, and it answers common questions about end of life. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll turn the spotlight on Dr. Cragen himself. I wonder if he'll have anything to say. <laughs> He's transitioning to the next phase of life, but not using the word retire. We'll find out what's next for Dr. Cragen after the break. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are talking with medical oncologist and palliative care specialist, Dr. Ed Cragen, and he's got a book coming out called Farewell about end-of-life issues, and it's coming out in the fall. But right now, we want to talk about you, Dr. Yes. Ed Cragen, <laughs> as you transition into retirement. I think that's correct. But if you had it to do all over again, would you do it? Oh, do it absolutely. The same way? I wouldn't change anything. Really? No regrets, no looking back. I won the lottery. I got the brass ring. I've been blessed that way. And you've been here how long? 41 winters. <laughs> <laughs> what, what have you learned in 41 winters? And I don't even know if it's a medical question, but what have you learned? I have learned that the future belongs to the fit. The future belongs to the focused. And there must be an element somehow of helping people either directly or indirectly. We're not making snow tires here. We're not selling toasters. And to touch someone's life surgically, emotionally, medication-wise is an absolute gift. But we need to understand that in the early 1900s, the average life expectancy was 45. Today, for those of us in southeast Minnesota who are privileged to have medical care, for most of us, unless we do something wacko, we're going to make it into the 90s. If, if, a, if we've made it this far. If we've made it this far. Right. If a couple 
is together and they're alive in their 60s, the odds are overwhelmingly good they're going to make it into their 90s. Most of us will spend more years beyond Mayo than active years having worked in the foundation. The generation before us retired. Yes. They worked at the same place. They got the gold watch. They had a cake and they retired. And you don't want to use the word retire. Absolutely not. And and we don't get the gold watch. Uh, no, basically you <laughs> well, get Well, most a fr- people don't work at the same... <laughs> you guys are unusual. Most people don't work at the same what place. What you get is a free PSA and a bone scan when you walk out the door, <laughs> and maybe a free stent in your coronary arteries. But the reality is we are the first generation to have this challenge of another 30 to 35 years of life. In general, most of our colleagues spend more time picking out an automobile than planning for the next 35 years. And what I've learned is that what got us here will not get us there. Mm. The gifts and skills that we have now will open some doors, but they'll just get your foot in the door, and if we don't recreate ourselves, we become obsolete and irrelevant. So tell us what you've done to prepare. Uh, You're retiring, are you retiring this year? Yes, the official date and there'll be global weeping and gnashing of teeth, will be September 4th, and I'm just hoping that everybody can just hold it together. (laughs) They may close it. They may shut the doors of the plumber building. I don't want to see big deal. So what have you done to prepare? Five years ago, I either had a stroke, an epiphany, or a seizure. I had a moment of (laughs) insight that said, okay, famous doctor, you're going to be looking at 35 additional years. What are you going to do with it? I drew a map of institutions within two hours of Rochester, between Winona, the Twin Cities, and Mankato. I wrote to the leaders of these organizations, and I told them about my transcendent, iconic greatness. I filled them in (laughs) on all the things I've done, palliative care, bioethics, yada, yada. So the letters got me invited. And after I heard the same song and dance about seven times, I caught on. What they said, we're glad you're here, but you know what? We don't care what you did at Mayo. How can we use you to promote our organization? How we can pigeonhole you into what we already have? I thought there would be an institution, a gold watch, a stadium named in my honor, nothing. Nada. So I realized if we don't recreate ourselves, we become irrelevant. So the first thing I did was to make certain that I was tech savvy. So I'm one of the few docs that almost exclusively uses the tablet for clinical care. I wanted to make sure that I was absolutely literate with Epic. And for our listeners, this is a new computer system. Because if one is Epic illiterate, we are irrelevant. So I learned a long time ago, we must be on the cutting edge of technology. And I've had the privilege of going to many Twitter schools. So I tweet almost every day. Bright and early. Bright and early. I have. You uh, beat me every morning. I am told that I'm almost <laughs> embarrassed to say this. More women wake up to me in the morning <laughs> than they do to their <laughs> companions. <laughs> And you have a blog also, don't you? Yes, I have a blog, and I also have columns through mayoclinic.com. Mom-and-pop stuff, fruits and vegetables, get a cat, stop complaining. Despite what your parents say, you're not special. You're just like anybody else. 
But if we don't recreate ourselves and stay fit and follow a plant-based diet and get a cat, one can fall into some very non-creative coping skills. So if there was someone who is going to be retiring at some point in the very near future but hasn't chosen that date yet, what would you suggest that you he do? When, <laughs> when you wake up on the first day of retirement, you're going to be looking at an additional 60 hours of, of playtime. 60 hours. And your Think of all the radio we can do, Dr. Shives. <laughs> and your spouse or partner wait. already has her life. She needs you like she needs a root canal. She has said that. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. She, yeah, I got it. And it can become very stressful. And in fact, when you look at the hierarchy of stressors, in-laws coming for Christmas, bankruptcy, right up there is retirement. And my neighborhood is a human laboratory of what not to have done. We had prominent surgeons, dermatologists, internists, IBM people. They thought... After they retire, they'd be invited back. It ain't going to happen, baby. Elvis has left the building. If we don't create ourselves, that phone is not going to ring. It's like one of my colleagues <clears throat> said, I went from who's who to who's that in about six months. Oh. It doesn't matter who you are or no, who you were. Not or where six you months, baby. Six minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe retirement isn't the worst word because... So you retire from what you've been doing all of this time, yes. and now the next thing is what's really going to be what knocks your socks right. off. This is refirement. Ah, nice. This is refirement. It's a job yes. change. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But if one doesn't think about this, one can do things that are not real creative, and I don't have to draw a map about that. <laughs> all right, Dr. Ed Cragen, let's see. What's your Twitter handle, by the way? It's, I don't get up that early, but... at uh, Edward Cragen. And you're a follower. Sure I am. How many followers you have? I have, as of this morning, 2,000, but with the retweets, sometimes 50 to 100,000 eyes yeah, I on retweet these tweets. Him. Do mm -hmm. you? Yeah, I do. Oh, yeah, they're that good. <laughs> all right, we've been talking with Dr. Ed Cragen, who has been an oncologist and a palliative care specialist at the Mayo Clinic at the twilight of his career. And don't forget about the book coming out in September. Everybody ought to read it before they leave the parking lot where they purchase the book. By the way, it'll be on Amazon. And it'll most be on stores. Amazon, and the book is gluten-free. So if you don't <laughs> like it, you can eat it, and it will firm up your movements. Uh, and Dr. Ed Cragen, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about the benefits of standing workstations and later on the show, the importance of dental health for adults. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Nearly one in nine American men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer at some point in their lives. That's according to the Prostate Cancer Foundation. But Dr. Matthew Tollefson, a Mayo Clinic oncologist, says cancer isn't the only problem men have to worry about when it comes to their prostates. He says the prostate gland sits around the urethra, just below the bladder. And even when men don't have prostate cancer, the prostate still grows over time. Men basically urinate through the middle of the prostate, kind of like through the hole in a donut. As that donut gets larger, that starts to pinch off the urinary stream. The result is a tough time emptying the bladder and a need to go more frequently. Infections of the prostate are also common and can have similar symptoms. Even though those symptoms can be embarrassing for some patients, Dr. Tollefson says it's important to see a health care provider. Many times the issues can be resolved with treatment. And in other news... 
cryptosporidium infections are caused by microscopic parasites that are spread through drinking water or recreational water such as swimming pools and hot tubs. These infections can cause intestinal distress, including diarrhea. Cryptosporidium parasites, which live in the intestines of humans or animals, are shed in stool. The infection is highly contagious, but there are ways to protect yourself and your family from getting sick. Dr. Nipuni Rajapaksi says avoiding activities where you might accidentally swallow some of the water in the swimming pool would be one of the best ways to prevent getting infected. If you do get sick after swimming, talk to your health care provider about proper treatment. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. For a lot of us, being at work means sitting in our chair, using our computers to get our work done. It's sort of like you, right? <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> well, here's the bad news. Research has shown that being sedentary, which includes too much sitting, poses a number of health risks, including obesity and heart disease. Hmm. A new study at the Mayo Clinic, though, offers one solution to this problem. Mayo researchers found that standing burns 0.15 calories per minute more than sitting. Ah, Not not a big deal, but over time. And it could add up. It could. While that number may not seem worth the effort or the bother, scientists insist that it adds up. For example, if you typically sit for six hours a day and trade that out for standing time, that's an extra... 54 calories burned each day. Well, that's over a year. That's a lot. Over huh? time. Tell yeah, us those, more. Those missing calories could lead to a five-pound weight loss each year. And if the problem is you end up gaining 10 pounds a year, you know, just do the math. Don't make me do any more math. Exactly. It's like just a little bit of exercise <laughs> every day makes a huge difference. Here to discuss is the lead author of the study, Dr. Francisco Lopez Jimenez, Division Chair of Preventive Cardiology at Mayo Clinic and also Research Director of the Dan Abraham Healthy Living Center. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Lopez Jimenez. Hi, thank you. Dr. Lopez Jimenez, good to have you. Uh, you wear a lot of hats, sounds like. <laughs> but what we want to talk about today is is sitting versus standing. And there is some pretty good evidence that standing at your desk instead of sitting does have some real health benefits. Yes, well, one of the potential benefits is uh, related to the caloric uh, expenditure, as, as you mentioned. Uh, but we believe that if the benefit might actually go beyond that might also relate to the fact that um, there are more muscles activated and therefore there may be some benefits to the cardiovascular system. To the cardiovascular system? Yeah. Just by standing? Yeah, well, you know, uh, what, what, what we know is bad for health is uh, sitting for too long. What uh, is still controversial is whether or not just standing will be uh, good enough to avoid the consequences of sitting. Now, uh, this research essentially shows that there is some extra caloric uh, expenditure during uh, standing, which means that that is kind of half of what you do when you are walking. Mm-hmm. And, and if we believe that walking is good, then standing by itself might, might be certainly better than sitting. Uh, the, the secondary benefit with standing is that when you stand up, it is, it is much easier to do spontaneous activity. So it's not that you just stand. So it's, it's easier just to move from your office to the uh, trash can and to the next door's office, uh, moving around the office. So, so those experiments in our study were done just standing. So was the 
the simplest uh, thing, but uh, the benefit might actually uh, go beyond that because you move more. How much time does the average American spend sitting each day? About seven to eight hours a day. Oh my gosh. And that's about six to s seven <laughs> hours or much. eight hours too much, huh? <laughs> so you have a standing yeah. desk? I do, yeah. Do you ever sit down or not much for I, lunch? I do. I will say, uh, you know, I try to sit about, it will be probably about three hours a day. Yeah, but I'm, I'm standing most of the day at work. At work, at work. It's not a standing desk. It's one of those um, uh, monitor holders. Oh, sure. And the keyboard is the thing that goes up and down. So you can be sitting or standing. Yeah, yeah. So is there some, some pretty good research to suggest that this is actually a good thing from a health standpoint? There, there, is, there is a lot of research showing that when you are standing, and especially when you break, break up the time sitting, whether it is just standing or moving around just a little bit, uh, the metabolism of the, of the sugar actually improves. And you don't have to spend too much time based on those studies. Um, as, long as, you break, as, as long as you break up those sitting time, uh, every half hour, every half an hour, you, you stand up and, and, and just move a little bit. That improves the, the metabolism of the sugar and uh, cholesterol mm -hmm. and other things. What are some of the other things that your research on standing desks or not sitting sure. showed you? Well, we, we just completed a, a, a very interesting uh, experiment trying to see if, if your attention span, your typing speed, your uh, ability to think and, and solve problems will change when you are standing. You know, people say, well, mm -hmm. you know, wh when I'm standing, I, I cannot concentrate. We tested uh, this thing, and, and it turns out that the concentration, typing speed, and, and your ability to solve problems doesn't change at all. And if anything, might actually improve a little bit. Hmm. So those skills are not affected, which is one of the main concerns by you know, supervisors and, sure. and people will say, well, you know, will people just start you know, making mistakes and, and, and uh, typing slower or something? Uh, it takes about a few minutes to, to get used to that. Yeah, don't your legs get tired? <laughs> Well, you know, that, that's a very good point, and I, I think it's a valid concern whether standing for too long might affect your, um, your veins and may cause Increased incidence uh, of varicose veins or it, blood clots or uh, I'm trying to find something <laughs> no, wrong with no. having to stand up. But I think that's, that's a very important issue, and, and I think that's why I don't believe that the solution is just standing. is not sitting, which includes standing and moving. You know, you don't develop blood clots when you when you move around. Sure. But standing alone, ma, ma, in some people, might be difficult. You might get lightheaded. Some people actually faint if you stand still for, for 20 minutes. Right. All right. So maybe you got to sort of move around a little bit and support stockings. And yeah, <laughs> we'll see. But I think it sounds great. <laughs> Do you have any other recommendations for people that might be listening about sitting versus standing? Well. I think it's important to, to mention that uh, the solution is not necessarily going out there and buying an expensive standing desk. There are many ways to stand at work. You can get uh, an earpiece that you can be uh, you can dictate instead of using the the telephone, mm -hmm. or 
or you can just put a box in front of you and put the uh, laptop on top of the box. I mean, as simple as that, mm -hmm. you can use the laptop on top of a box and that's your, you know, homemade standing mm -hmm. desk. All right, well, we've been talking about the health benefits of standing workstations as opposed to sitting at your computer with the division chair of preventive cardiology and the research director of the Dan Abraham Healthy Living Center at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Francisco Lopez Jimenez. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for the invitation. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll explain why regular dental visits are important for adults. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Have you been putting off your annual checkup with the dentist? Have you been putting off your annual checkup with the dentist? No. Oh, you probably skipped it all no. together, no, didn't you? No, not at all. Well, if you have uh, <laughs> either one of those, you're, you're not alone. A recent survey of 2,000 adults in the United States found that 6 in 10 adults were scared to visit the dentist. That's amazing. Well, it is. Well, while we, know, we know that regular dental checkups help us to keep those pearly whites. Good oral health is important for overall health as well. And here to discuss the importance of regular dental checkups is Mayo Clinic prosthodontist. That's, is that right? That was that's good. correct. Yeah, thank Dr. You. Thomas Salinas. I have learned over the years. Yeah, that's huh. a that was very yeah good to see you excellent. again dr salinas hello thanks. thanks great thanks for having me <laughs> so dr salinas did the results of that survey surprise you six out of ten people are scared to go to the dentist no i think it's uh, pretty common actually uh, looking at the american dental association's most recent survey of uh, a number of adults both vulnerable and regular populations all have a same a similar type common fear of the dentist uh, i think it's related to a lot of their perhaps uh, maybe just lack of knowledge of knowing what's involved or what might be involved. So it's a common fear we see in the United States. Unfounded, though, right? Well, I think I think it is unfounded. I think you can have a number of fears that we're all afraid of. Certainly, uh, the fear of the unknown, fear of pain, fear of, of lack of control. Those are all common fears that we all experience, especially when we visit the dentist. Hmm. Um, a prosthodontist, uh, by the way, you, what you uh, replace missing parts, isn't that what a prosthodontist does? You In have general, a, you have yes. a subspecialty. Yeah, 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 of the orofacial region. So we have various uh, types of work that we do related to replacing not just missing teeth, but missing parts of the jaw and orofacial structures as well. Some folks are missing uh, part of their orbit, their eye, uh, their nose. Uh, these can be made actually in a pretty similar fashion as teeth are uh, with uh, perhaps just different materials. I'm thinking about the people who are afraid to go to the dentist and uh, the fear of pain or the fear of loss of control. Uh, I guess they touch on things other than dentistry. So how can you help a patient to uh, get over those fears? I think it all starts when we're young, you know, uh, schooling us from a very young age as this is something that's normal. It's something mm -hmm. that is common with regard to health maintenance, getting little kids in to see the dentist at a, at a very early age. Uh, goes on throughout life. It goes on through regular practices and seeing your doctor, seeing your dentist. Uh, and I think if we can just make that happen in general, I think that gets to be something that people are less afraid of because mm -hmm. it's more familiar. Uh, Preschool-aged children in this country, really embarrassingly, have the highest level of decay in some parts of the world. So, you know, 
I think it, a lot of this starts with access to care. It starts with just regular oral hygiene. There's a number of things that we have available now in the dental setting that makes people a bit calmer when it comes to seeing your dentist with regard to sedation uh, and just relaxation techniques. Mm -hmm. I think dentists now recognize that, and many dental offices have become spas uh, more <laughs> than anything else. So people are generally uh, in tune with feeling well and getting the dentist as part of this is just another aspect of it. Tell us why it's a problem uh, to ignore your teeth and your mouth. Well, a recent survey, as I mentioned before, from the American Dental Association in 2015 indicated that the most common oral problem is pain across the walks of socioeconomic status. Um, these are hidden factors. It could relate to gum disease. It could be related to dental caries, uh, cavities, that is. And it could be related to burning mouth or a dry oral cavity for lots of reasons. It could be medication that people take. And if we don't really understand it or get to the root of it, it can cause an oral infection that can be chronic in nature. And again, the same survey showed that the quality of, of life is significantly less for people that experience oral pain. So there are many things that we can do with regard to making people feel that this is normal, okay? There's a lot of patients out there that suffer with this needlessly. And if we would just have a regular care guideline, that certainly the American Dental Association suggests, but people have to understand that regular care is important, just like it is for medicine. So seeing your dentist regularly or a dental care provider regularly will uncover these sorts of things, and it can lead to resolution of the problem in many cases. What does regularly mean to you? <laughs> well, I think at least having an oral examination every year is, is a good thing. Seeing a dentist or a dental hygienist for a cleaning, routine cleaning, x-rays of teeth um, annually is, is good. Uh, having it twice a year is, is preferable. Uh, that may not be within everyone's reach, but it's what's standardly suggested. And it has been shown that this is, is something that, that is beneficial with regard to identifying oral disease early on and addressing it and, and solving problems that people tend to pop up with commonly. Dental caries, cavities, are much less common in kids than they used to be, aren't they? Because of the fluoridation of the water supply. Now, we didn't have that. And you, you were on a well, weren't you? I sure was. There's no fluoride well. there. No. And we didn't have fluoride in the water supply when I was growing up, so I had a mouthful of amalgam. That's why my mouth looks the way it does, <laughs> yeah. yes. So with regard to that, it's very interesting you mention it because in comparison to some of us that grew up in the 50s and 60s, I think the exposure to fluoride is a lot different. Uh, we're, we're a fluoride generation, we see less of it, certainly in young age groups as well. But even for preschool age children, this is something that gets past us. We don't always have access to this population and getting parental attention isn't so easy. So unfortunately, tooth decay in preschool age children has become an epidemic. Really? It well, has in this country, yes. And isn't it because parents think, well, if the, the baby teeth fall out, it doesn't matter if it has a cavity in it or not? Yeah. Some of it is just preconceived notions. A lot of it is access to care. But uh, I think in this country, we tend to lose sight of that, knowing what we know, that fluoride and fluoridated water supply has indeed reduced the amount of, of dental cavity formation in, in most of the U.S. population now. So my kids get fluoride uh, painted on when they go to the dentist for their checkup. Should I, as an adult, keep getting fluoride painted onto my teeth? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, if we all invest in regular dental care, mm -hmm. this is beneficial uh, for all of us that still have our permanent teeth. 
uh, I think it's a good thing. It, it definitely decreases the amount and incidence of breakdown from tooth decay. I wish that my uh, dental insurance would see it that way. How come, is, it, is there some discrepancy of whether fluoride is important for adults or not? Yeah, I think it definitely does. And uh, depending on the dental insurance, mm-hmm. not all are standard, mm-hmm. uh, as, you, as you certainly have brought up. Uh, it is important. It's, a, it's an adjunct to regular oral care. It's an adjunct to preventive dentistry as well. And I think it's, a, it's an important aspect, even in vulnerable populations. Some of our elderly, uh, some of those that are institutionalized benefit from it. Uh, patients that are medically disadvantaged certainly benefit from it. So uh, as it's part of preventive care, it should indeed be part of, of third-party coverage, right? And another reason to, to see your dentist is that you can sometimes pick up other serious health maladies by looking in the mouth, right? Indeed. The mouth is a gateway for all sorts of identification of diseases. Some of this has been correlated with other medical diseases. Uh, for instance, uh, periodontal disease and coronary artery disease are correlated. It's not to say that it's causative, but I do think that there are certain types of oral diseases that that sort of give us an idea of the health of the individual we're examining. So yes, that's true. How often should we brush our teeth? Preferably twice, if not three times a day. Typically morning and evening are are good times to do this. This is the amount of time that probably is equidistant from bacteria developing on the surfaces of teeth. So this is when it's most effective. Flossing still important? Absolutely. Flossing is important for lots of reasons. Flossing not only removes debris between the teeth, but it also disturbs the population of bacteria that tend to congregate between teeth. These bacteria take on whatever oxygen is available and reduce it to a sort of an anaerobic or no oxygen environment. And this is a hallmark of some aspects of periodontal disease. Electric toothbrush? Electric toothbrushes are an excellent idea. They do a better job even than I can do with my own manual. I can tell you that. And uh, the way they've become more affordable in this day and age has made it universally available for many more people than what it ever used to be. Kind of toothpaste matter? Really doesn't. I mean, you could probably do the same thing with uh, just mouthwash or even just water, salt and water. Is, it would be just uh, appropriate. It's the act of brushing itself that takes the debris away from teeth and makes it, uh, makes it effective. Dr. And Sheridan used to always say, whatever's on sale. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, can you rebuild enamel on your tooth? You know, it doesn't necessarily rebuild enamel. It makes it more resistant to acidic breakdown and makes it harder in in surfaces. So I think there are some truth in advertising issues that are available uh, that we see every day. Uh, So uh, making teeth resistant by fluoridating them and making them more resistant to breakdown is, is more the key. All right, oral health and the importance of dental checkups with Dr. Thomas Salinas. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me today. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.